This is the Fertility Hour, where couples learn how to improve their fertility naturally. Join Charlene Lincoln as she interviews leading experts in the fields of natural fertility, holistic medicine, and preconception care. Fertility Hour is where you'll find evidence-based strategies, tips, and resources to help you when trying to conceive. And now, here's Charlene Lincoln. Okay, today I have one of my most favorite people in the world, uh, Dr. Eva Keem. So honored to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank and, you. Um, yeah, you're welcome. So Dr. Eva Keem is an accredited naturopathic physician and natural fertility specialist with a master's in reproductive medicine based in Verbier, Switzerland. Eva and her team have developed award-winning natural fertility programs since 2007. She has helped hundreds of previously infertile couples have children with her prescriptive natural approach that's tailored to each couple's case and condition. In 2013, she was named by Women's Health Magazine as one of 15 women who will change your health. She's been featured on The Wellness Hour, Mercola.com, Pregnancy Corner, and many other health and fertility publications. So welcome again, uh, Eva. Thank you so much. You know, I I say she's one of the most my you know one of my favorite people in the world because well she's wonderful. She's intelligent. She's bright. She's compassionate. She's dedicated to helping people, and she helped me have my beautiful daughter um, Mina at forty two years old. So I'm always so grateful. Um, to her. Thank you. Thank you. So today, you know, um, I really want to talk about obviously fertility. That's our subject, but um, you know, preconception care. I have some questions about a specific topic like PCOS and um, mm -hmm. you know, fertility foods and you know, all, all different type of things that are that people pretty actionable, practical tips, hopefully, mm -hmm. that we can give people. Sure. So yeah, let's get started. Um, okay. So, you know, and I, I've said this to you before, the thing that made that kind of caught my eye when I was trying to conceive and looking at everything out there, it, it seems like when you're older, um, you know, a, a lot of, you get a lot of discouraging news, you know, your, your eggs are of poor quality, you know, sperm is possibly a, a poor quality, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And um, they don't give you a lot of advice on. Yes, you can you can improve this egg quality, and this is what you can do. It's just basically eggs are getting older, chromosomal you know abnormalities, all that type of thing. But then you were coming out with research saying that you could actually improve egg quality. So please clarify why they say that egg and sperm health cannot wait. Clarify why they say that egg and sperm health can be improved, or why you say it when the conventional view is that it's not possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sure. So I, I think, yeah, I think it, it, is, it is quite confusing um, when you get mixed messages. You know, your doctor may tell you there is nothing you can do to improve your egg health or sperm health. And then, you know, you come across a website like ours and we talk about how to improve quality of your eggs and sperm. So the i think we're talking about two different things and i think that's where the confusion comes from you know what doctors are referring to if you're going to an ivf clinic and you're seeing an ivf specialist what they're referring to is the egg that you are just about to ovulate um likewise you know with the sperm the sperm that the you know men ejaculate at that point in time there's nothing you can do about that. That's, you know, ready. Okay, they can prepare it for IVF, but you can't really improve the quality of that sperm. Likewise, you can't improve the quality of the egg that was just retrieved. What we are talking about is improving or giving the body the right conditions to mature healthy eggs. So in women, every 120 days, five or six of so-called primordial follicles are selected for maturation and they undergo this four-month maturation process. And everything that you come into contact with during that period of time can influence the quality of the eggs for better or for worse. So if you have a nutrient deficiency, if you have a toxicity, 
um, if your immune system is, you know, uh, fighting some bug or there's some autoimmune activity going on, all of these things can impact how that batch of eggs develops. So after that four-month period, only one or two of those cells that were selected for maturation will become egg cells and will um, be ovulated. Likewise, in men, everything they do 76 to 90 days prior to the time when you want to conceive can impact the quality of the sperm that is undergoing development at that point in time. So um, that's what we are talking about. We are talking about you know, different things, I think. It's true, there's nothing you can do about the quality of the egg you're about to ovulate or the sperm you're about to ejaculate, but there is a lot you can do to improve the quality of the eggs, which will form in four months from now and in men in three months from now. And that's where, you know, all this preconception care comes into the picture with um, dietary adjustments, lifestyle adjustments, supplementation with um, nutrients you may be deficient in. And, you know, then we look at lots of other things like electromagnetic radiation, also toxicity in the form of um, heavy metals and so on. So um, I hope that clarifies it a bit. So you need to give time, you know, it's not, sometimes I receive emails from, um, from women saying, look, I've got my egg retrieval in a couple of weeks. What can I do now, you know, to get lots of eggs or to improve the quality of the eggs. And by that stage, you know, it's, there's not much you can do. Um, so, yeah. When you're talking about nutritional deficiencies and heavy metal testing and you, you're, you're naming a, a couple diagnostic type things. So, so there's tests for all of these things to, to find yeah. out if what nutrients you're deficient in, if you have heavy metal toxicity, mm -hmm. um, if you have yeah. food sensitivity so, issues. That's right. We, we do, you know, we, we can do um, a hair mineral analysis to check for heavy metal toxicities. We can also check for food intolerances. Um, we can do blood tests and nutrigenomic tests to look for nutrient deficiencies and, um, you know, look at the hormonal um, balance. And, um, and you know, the, we also go into uh, genetic testing. So we, we check for genetic poly, gene polymorphisms, which, um, you know, all of us have. And some are quite important when it comes to fertility and getting and staying pregnant. Uh, can you t talk about, um, with the genetic polymorphism, I, I guess there's one that it seems to be coming up more and more. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, so I think the one that um, you know, a lot of people are familiar with is the MTHFR gene or the methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase. Um, uh, the enzyme which this gene is responsible for and its job is to transport folic acid around the system and into the cell. So if you're lacking that enzyme, when folic acid docks onto the receptor of the cell, it can't be drawn into that cell or it can, but maybe, you know, your body's not producing adequate amounts of this enzyme. So you, you can um, have lots of folic acid, say, outside your red cells because you've just taken your supplement, your prenatal, or you know, you've eaten food that's been fortified with folic acid. Folic acid is man-made, so it's not to be confused with folate, which is naturally occurring. Um, and so, you know, when, when sometimes people do these tests, they can see that their you know folic acid levels are outside the reference range. And so the recommendation may be, are you taking too much? Um, don't have more, but that doesn't actually show us what's getting inside the, the cell because it's just from, from the serum. And, um, and then if you check for genetic polymorphisms, if you see that someone actually has MTHFR mutation, then you can question, well, you know, is the form um, of folate or folic acid that this person is using beneficial for them or not if it can't get access to the cell. So um, that is one. And um, the other one is the other one that's quite common and that's also very important for fertility is the MTRR, which is responsible for B12. So folic acid and B12 need each other. And um, it's almost like a seesaw action. One balances out the other. And if you don't have adequate amounts of 
one, then you know you, they can't balance each other out. So um, you need to also check for that one, and it's you know it's very common um, that we see MTRR or MTR uh, genetic polymorphisms. You know, I, I've always worked in integrative practices or, you know, practicing um, functional medicine. If, if you go to your conventional doctor, are, are they familiar with these tests? I mean, I'm sure it depends on the MD you go to, but do you, do you have to go to someone who's, you know, practicing functional medicine to kind of have an I understanding? So, yes, I, I don't think it's, you know, yet reached, um, you know, all, all of the levels of conventional medicine, but um, a functional medicine or integrative medicine practitioner uh, will most likely be aware of this as someone who has specialized in this area. Um, and uh, yes, you, you know, you, you can get this test done and then you can see, okay, instead of folic acid, you'll do better off, you'll be better off with fo um, folinic acid or methylfolate or, you know, when it comes to B12, maybe methylcobalamin or um, adenosylcobalamin or there's also hydroxycobalamin. So it just depends, you know, on, on the combination of genes that you have and what's better for you. And, you know, these two are very important because they're both involved in DNA replication. And when um, the egg is first fertilized and the cells start, you know, rapidly dividing, it's very important that the DNA that's being copied is going to get copied properly. Otherwise, there's greater room for error, and then that can predispose to miscarriages or, you know, other abnormalities and complications. Okay, thanks for clarifying that. Um, why do couples have no issues conceiving their first child and after can't get pregnant with their second child or suffer reoccurrent miscarriages? That's a, that's a great question. And, you know, it's one that really puzzles people because they think, you know, okay, I had no trouble getting pregnant once, so it's going to be easy the second time. And, and, you know, it, a lot of people are really surprised um, when it's not happening very easily. And, and then of course it gets even worse if they start miscarrying. So the, the first thing, um, I, I think the, fir the, the first thing that's important to mention here is that after full-term pregnancy and breastfeeding, your body is no longer, you know, the same as it was prior to that pregnancy because you've just created a whole human body from your nutrient reserves and from, you know, your diet that you had at a time. Plus then you breastfed for, I don't know, six months, nine months, a year, some women breastfeed even longer. Um, so, you know, if you haven't been getting enough nutrients over that period of time, then you could have a nutrient deficiency. Uh, you could be deficient in a lot of things. The other thing that um, plays an important role is the immune system, because when a woman becomes pregnant, her immune system becomes slightly suppressed. And this is so that it doesn't attack the embryo because our immune system is programmed to destroy any foreign DNA and an embryo strictly speaking is a foreign DNA. So during that period of time, if there were some, you know, issues that the immune system was dealing with prior to pregnancy and then its activity slowed down and then it, you know, goes back to its normal activity after birth, there can be, you know, some shifts and it's quite common to see thyroid issues in, um, in many women um, after the first pregnancy and also Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune condition of the thyroid gland where the, the thyroid gland is being attacked by the immune system. So, you know, you got to look at all these different factors. Plus, if you have MTHFR gene polymorphism, that can also play up later. And that's, I think, I, I don't know exactly why that is. Um, maybe there have been some studies done in this area or not. I'm not sure. But I think it's because you go through, you know, so much folic acid during your pregnancy. Um, and it's such an important nutrient that, you know, maybe your body just needs needs to have that support a little bit better before your second pregnancy. So if you if you suffer from recurrent miscarriages, you really need to look into genetic polymorphisms. You need to get your 
nutrient levels checked you need to get your hormones checked you need to see if you know if if there are any autoimmune activities going on um, and likewise you know sperm also needs to be checked and adjusted just because a man was able to father a child you know five six years ago it doesn't necessarily mean the sperm are of same quality so um, a little bit more investigation is necessary I know you really um, try to educate people as much as possible uh, on on that subject, but also talking about sperm health, because I think there was sort of this belief that, I mean, women have a, a, a period, you know, it's called, you know, our biological clock ends at a certain point, but it was, it was often believed that a man could, um, you know, father children for years and years and years, because you would hear mm -hmm. some stories somewhat uncommon, but men 70 years old having a child and things like that. But sperm quality really has declined um, in the last 20 years, hasn't it? Yes. I mean, we do see that, you know, the World Health Organization keeps adjusting the um, sperm parameters. And, um, you know, if they use the sperm parameters from the 1950s, then every single man today would test as infertile so that is a little bit scary and we do see uh, you know downward trend especially uh, when it comes to sperm morphology um, you know the, the, and the, a lot of the other parameters are not as good either I mean now you only need four percent normal looking sperm um, to have a normal you know sperm morphology um, on your sperm analysis and that means that 96% are abnormal and that's you know not good odds mm. so you gotta work on that and improve the sperm and sperm are also quite sensitive to the environmental factors and um, you know now we also have the electromagnetic radiation from cell phones and men tend to keep their cell phones in their pants pockets close to their um, testes and um, there was some suggestion that such close proximity um, to the testes can reduce overall quality of the sperm by 20% within four hours. So um, that's, you know, you know, most, most people walk around with their cell phones for eight hours a day, if not longer, if they sleep with them. So, yeah. Okay. What would you advise um, to couples? What would you advise couples to do before they try again? So, you know, if, if you're suffering from secondary infertility or you've been diagnosed with secondary infertility um, or, you know, you, you're suffering from recurrent miscarriages, then first thing to do would be to really just um, look at your hormone levels, check for nutrient deficiencies, check for um, heavy metal toxicities, um, check for genetic polymorphisms and get the sperm analyzed. And then, um, you know, it's best to have someone who's trained um, in natural fertility to help you interpret all this and put it in, um, you know, into perspective and, and help you with the next steps so that you can address all the underlying issues. It could just be a vitamin D deficiency. You know, it's, it's a nutrient that a lot of people are deficient in and um, or it could be you know a genetic polymorphism it could be a toxicity um, it could be some other issue but you really need to know what's going on to be able to address it properly um, and that would be the first step so if you haven't had any of these investigations done before do that first if you did check the dates if they're older than three months they're not necessarily representative of the current situation Okay, um, you you know you you brought up ge genetic polymorphisms a, a couple times. Um, for for those of us who are not familiar with um, what that means, can you explain? Sure, sure. So um, you know we inherit fifty percent of our genes from our mom and fifty percent of our genes from our dad. <clears throat> Excuse me, and. Um, and this all happens, you know, a few hours after conception and that's it. You're stuck with these genes for the rest of your life. So um, you've got, you know, different types of genes that do different things. When we're talking about genetic polymorphisms um, and MTHFR, what we're talking about are genes responsible for 
transportation of particular nutrients. So like with MTHFI it was folic acid, with MTRR it's B12. Um, you've got VDR um, that's responsible for vitamin D and so on. So you've got you know a lot of different genes that do different things. And um, if one of these genes is not functioning properly, which means it's not producing adequate amounts of this enzyme that has a particular job in the system, then that function is not going to be performed very well. So with folic acid, apart from its importance for DNA replication, you also got to look at its importance for detoxification because our liver takes all the toxins and processes them in two phases. In phase one, it'll take something and make it even more toxic. And in phase two, it will attach folic acid to make the toxic substance water soluble so it can be excreted by feces and sweat and urine. And if it doesn't have adequate access to folic acid, so if there's not enough folic acid coming in or folate, then it can't detox. It can't do the phase two properly. So the toxins can build up in the system. And, uh, you know, that, that then predisposes you to a whole new host of issues. So, um, that's, you know, that, that's what happens with genetic polymorphism. So we're just trying to identify which ones you have and then bypass them. So you can use different formulations of these nutrients which do not rely on the presence of this enzyme to get access to the cell. So even though you, you're not producing enough of that enzyme, you're still going to um, be giving your body adequate amounts of that nutrient. Say that you don't know that if you, that you don't that you don't know that you have the MTHFR gene mutation, but would it be safe to say that it would be preferable for you to get a multi uh, a prenatal vitamin that had folinic acid um, versus yeah. folic acid, like a whole food type supplement? Um, I know that they're making those more and more readily available. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we recommend prenatals um, which don't have folic acid, just in case. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for for those people who don't get tested or don't want to get tested, not everyone wants to know. You know, their genes and predispositions, and so that's a very personal choice. Uh, but yeah, it's better to use the so-called active form of bees, mm -hmm. um, which the body can utilize much better and in case you do have a genetic polymorphism that genetic polymorphism can be bypassed i would think that maybe you wouldn't <clears throat> you wouldn't care to be tested if you really haven't been struggling with fertility issues but i think if you have for a while that that would be something most of us would want to know because that could be sure. a big piece sure. of the puzzle True, yeah. but you'd be surprised, you know, okay. you, some people just really go, I really don't want to know, you know, mm -hmm. um, but most, most do, yeah, most people mm -hmm. um, do want to know what type of folic acid and what type of B12 is best suited to their body um, and uh, yeah, and lo lots of others. Yeah, mm -hmm. I understand that. Um, when I was getting pressured to go to a fertility clinic, I said, I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to be assessed for egg quality at this point. Or I just knew that uh, mentally, psychologically, spiritually, I had to keep myself strong and I didn't want to be assessed in that way. Um, I know that that's a little bit different, but just to um, be brought down to a bunch of numbers, you know. Um, oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, what, what we do know from epigenetic studies is that we control 95% of genetic expression. Uh, with our diet and lifestyle and our thoughts um, and our moves. And um, okay, you know, the, here we are talking more about the expression of genes that could potentially predispose you to, you know, cancer or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. Of course, your dietary and lifestyle choices are going to, you know, help with it, with that. But uh, when we're talking about this, I call them functional genes. So they're just genes that, you know, they're like working bees. They just have one job. And that is to transport that folic acid around. And, it, it, you know, if it, they can't do it because there's not enough of that enzyme because the gene doesn't function properly, so it can't make that enzyme in adequate amounts, then um, 
you know, you do have to do something about it. And there is something you can do about it. So mm -hmm. it's not like it's, um, you know, you have it and that's it. You, there is nothing to that you can do to address it. But of course, like you pointed out, you know, nature already provides us with the right forms of all these nutrients because leafy greens and fruits, they're full of, you know, folic acid, especially leafy greens or folate. So if you're getting plenty of your leafy greens, you'll be getting also your folate. Um, but a lot of people don't get adequate amounts of leafy mm -hmm. greens and um, not every day. And for pregnancy, you know, sometimes you're looking at more of a state of luxury rather than, rather than just uh, covering your basic needs. When it and, and it is a much different scenario than, than what I brought up. Like you said, once you find out, you can be very proactive and, and make yeah. dietary changes and influence that. Okay. Um, I'm just looking because we, we had talked about um, common genetic polymorphisms. Um, why do you, okay, so why do you recommend um, food intolerance testing for fertility and, um, and how could a food intolerance impact one's ability to get pregnant? Um, all right, so that, that's, that's a good question and it's one that quite a few clients will ask because they're like, I'm trying to get pregnant, I'm not here because I have digestive issues or, you know, something mm -hmm. like that. So it's important to understand how everything in the system is connected um you know your your digestive system is about you being able to digest and assimilate your nutrients and if you can't do this properly then you can have the best quality diet you can take the best quality supplements but they're just not getting inside your system and that's why it's important to assess um, that function. And the reason we look for food intolerances is, is if, you, if, if you have a food intolerance and you are eating it, you're eating that food um, on a regular basis, then every time you ingest that food, your body's gonna launch an immune attack. And that can predispose to so-called leaky gut because in order for those immune cells to reach your gut, the the cells need to move apart a little bit. So they need to become sort of porous so that these immune cells can get through. But what happens now, you've got immune cells coming out to the site of what they regard as um, inflammation. And you have also food particles that can get through those gaps, you know, and get behind the sterile gut wall where they get picked up by the immune system. So one food intolerance predisposes to other food intolerances. Mm -hmm. Um, and on top of that, your body produces mucus to coat the area um, where, where the immune activity is happening to help heal that, that space. But that, if that's happening in your small intestines where all of the nutrient absorption is taking place, where you have the so-called brush border um, with your microvilli or finger-like projections which hold on to the nutrients, um, then they can't do their job anymore. It's a bit like having a hairbrush and you put a lot of um, hair conditioner in your hairbrush. You know, now all the, the little bristles, they're coated and they can't, you know, they can't really brush your hair properly. So likewise, you can't hold on to those nutrients and that's predisposing you to nutrient deficiencies. On top of that, um, you know, the immune system, when it goes into overdrive because it's fighting something or it's doing some sort of repair work, it's demanding a lot of energy and this is exhausting the adrenals. It can then put strain on the thyroid so the thyroid can slow down in order to give adrenals a break. So now you're impacting your whole endocrine system just because you're eating a food your body is intolerant to. And oftentimes we talk about, you know, gluten and dairy and corn and eggs. I mean, things that, you know, quite a few people are intolerant to. So these are well known, but People can also be intolerant to other things which are not necessarily regarded as, um, you know, as a highly allergenic food. Um, but if it features um, in your diet quite a lot, then, you know, your digestive function will be impaired. And, you, you know, you don't always necessarily have to have all the symptoms of, um, you know, of poor um, digestive function like diarrhea or constipation or mucus in stool or anything like that. I mean, if, you, if you're experiencing that, that's probably 
progressed a little bit more, but most people, if they actually really do pay attention to their bowel motions, they will say, okay, actually, yeah, on some days, you know, it's not really that great or it's too watery or I am actually constipated or actually I did see mucus from time to time or, you know, that food really makes me bloated or when I eat it, I have to sleep or lie down or I get really irritable. So it just depends. You know, unless you're paying attention to it, you wouldn't necessarily think that there is a connection. That's why we, we test for it. And, um, and as I mentioned previously, you know, when, when a woman becomes pregnant, her immune system becomes slightly suppressed so that it doesn't attack the embryo. So if you have, you know, lots of food intolerances, if you on top maybe have asthma or eczema or some other, you know, autoimmune issue going on, your immune system can ignore that signal or, you know, can, can just not play along and then you know that there can be complications if your immune system is attacking the embryo interfering with implantation you were you were discussing some of the more common food allergens right the the dairy the eggs gluten if um if you weren't ready to get a food intolerance test um could you do something you know it's called like an elimination diet and just start eliminating these one by one or is there some kind of like simple way that you could go and see i mean i, I guess you can't be guaranteed to know um if if these are known allergens but can you talk a little bit about that like something that if people just want to eliminate them themselves oh sure, sure i mean elim elimination diet is you know quite popular you can just cut out you know gluten dairy eggs um corn um, soy, for example, from your diet um, for, you know, three months and then slowly reintroduce one at a time um, and see, you know, how you feel. So, so you can have one food over a period of 72 hours um, after, you have, after you haven't had it for, you know, three to six months and then you can... Um, observe how you feel you know how do you sleep that night do you get bloated um what's your bowel motion like um do you have you know skin outbreaks are there any changes to your mood um and you have you know just regular portion on day one and then you observe all the symptoms and then if nothing happens you don't see that you have any symptoms then on the next day you have the same amount of food again you observe yourself again if nothing happens, you have it on the third day. And if then nothing happens, then most likely you're not intolerant to that food. However, if you notice any, you know, changes um, in all those areas, you would stop having that food immediately. So you wouldn't have it again. But, you know, it, it, it can be quite tricky. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it's really worth your while investing in a food intolerance test. And if you can't afford one, um, through your doctor, then um, um, you, you can also, I think there's one called uh, Food Detective on Amazon that's quite affordable that you can do yourself at home. I don't know, you know, how accurate the results are, but um, I have seen a few clients use it and um, some of them then also had another test done at a doctor's office and they actually had similar results. So, um, yeah, there are ways. And there's also an app that can, I think, help you measure your pulse rate because when you eat your food, when you eat a food that your body's intolerant to, then your pulse rate is going to go up. So you, there's an app that can actually, you know, measure that for you. And then it can tell you, okay, you maybe could be intolerant to this particular food. But, mm -hmm. you know, most people feel really good when they eliminate dairy and gluten. And then um, if there's still some issues with eggs, we see eggs, unfortunately, um, quite a lot because eggs are, you know, nature's perfect food when it comes to all the nutrients they have, especially for fertility. But unfortunately, you know, I I've seen so many egg white intolerances. It's almost in every second or third client, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, I've treated uh, allergies and eggs always come up for people. And, yeah. you know, I mean, they came up for me and, and at the time I was quite surprised because, well, <laughs> it, it's something usually that you're eating every single day. And so it, it you logically you go, 
Oh, well, I'm not allergic to that. I eat that every day, but you are having signs and symptoms. You just don't know that they're related. Like yeah. you can have chronic sinus infections. Well, that's not from me eating eggs. It's because I have al uh, environmental allergies. Well, it actually can be triggered by the food intolerance. And like you said, when you started talking about the elimination diet, I thought, right, that's, that's probably not the best way to go. I've seen people be allergic to oranges, apples, blueberries, where it even sent them into anaphylaxis. I mean, it could be anything that you're eating. Yeah. So um, I think those food intolerance tests are definitely the way to go. Um, but can you talk about uh, gluten a little bit more? I mean, you know, we're always told that we should eliminate gluten, but is it really that bad for us? I mean, yeah. it's in everything. Uh, that's a good question. Um, there, there, there are lots of different theories, you know, about gluten and what 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 causes all this issue around it, you know, and and some say oh, it's because the wheat plants were genetically modified in the eighties to so that you know they're shorter and stronger and they can carry more wheat buds, so farmers can get more wheat um per you know plant and um and through, through that genetic modification the wheat itself um became more glutinous so it just had more gluten and uh than before and then you know there's the other theory that gluten's been added to everything from your shampoos to you know body lotions um to uh, salad dressings and sauces and other things where you wouldn't normally expect it. And now, you know, there's just um, an overabundance of gluten and that's what's stirring up the immune system. And then there's the theory that, you know, gluten, gluten means glue in Greek and that when we have so much gluten coming in, you know, from our skin, through our diet, um, the body is just producing too much of an enzyme called zonulin, which helps break down this glue. But the problem is that a lot of the gut cells are also glued together with their own endogenous glue. And that when that enzyme is overactive, it can actually dissolve that glue as well. And that now predisposes you to leaky gut. So the tie junctions, these cells which are glued together, they now come apart. And again, you have that situation where particles can get behind the gut wall. Um, there have been studies done on um, schizophrenic patients where they've taken gluten out of their diet and they've all come off their medication and then they put gluten back into their diet and they all had to go back on their medication. So gluten can also cross the blood-brain barrier and can excite the brain, which is why um, also in, in children with um, autism spectrum disorders, gluten, it's recommended that they cut out gluten from their diet because they observe similar effects that their brains just calm down a little bit. Um, so it's, you know, um, it's also recommended for um, clients who have unexplained infertility to remove gluten because it's been shown that, you know, taking gluten out of your diet can actually fix a lot of things. People with autoimmune conditions, people with um, inflamed joints, they all do better uh, when they cut out gluten. So there's definitely some pro-inflammatory action going on and, and it triggers the immune system. And um, so, yeah, you, you, for fertility, I think um, it's best to just cut it out, especially if you've been trying to conceive for a long period of time and you haven't been successful. And not all labs check for all the different fractions of gluten. They're about 12 or 13. Um, and as far as I know, only Cyrex looks for all 12 or 13 fractions of gluten. I think out of like regular tests, we look for um, gluten. Um, they will look for um, gliding, but they're not going to check for the other ones. So you could test negative for those two, but you could be positive for the others. Most people feel better when they take out gluten from their diets. Um, their mood improves, their sleep improves, their skin improves. They actually notice they don't have, you know, sniffly noses anymore or post-nasal drips or, you know, their digestive function improves and they lose weight. They don't hold on to their water, especially women. Um, so, yeah, and like I said, you just have to be really careful about your personal care products, even the natural vegan personal care products. Um, if something's labeled with um, vegetable protein, vegetable protein is usually 
gluten. Um, also, Satan is a source of protein for vegans and vegetarians, and that's just one big lump of gluten. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, you need to be careful there. I used to eat a lot of seitan back in the day when I was a vegetarian. It was healthy food. Buddhist monks ate it. I mean, that was the kind of the, you know, yeah. before you knew, and then you're like, oh my gosh, I was eating so much gluten. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it, it's tough out there. Um, the, you were mentioning the, um, the allergy test, the food intolerance test, is it Cyrex Labs, you were saying? Yeah. Is that available as a, um, can, can, is, it, is it direct to consumer lab or do you have to go through a practitioner? You go through a practitioner. I see, okay. They're, they're very, uh, I mean, it's on par with Genoa Diagnostics mm -hmm. that a lot of practitioners use. Um, and it's, it, practitioners in the UK and um, in the US have access to Cyrix. I, I, maybe now they're also available elsewhere, but um yeah, that, that's one of the labs. I mean, you know, people just go, look, I'm happy to just cut out gluten and see how I go. If I feel better, I'm just going to maintain it that way. That's another way you can go about it. But um, I'm just pointing out that, you know, it could also be in your creams and lotions and potions and shampoos. And skin is, a, you know, one of the largest organs in our body. So if you're putting cream all over it that has gluten, that's a lot of gluten. Is there any book that you could recommend? Because like in practice for women who are struggling to lose weight, I would recommend that book, Wheat Belly, and then that would really yeah. be an eye opener. Is, is there any other gluten um, books that... The Grain Brain. I love The Grain oh, Brain by yeah. Dr. Kornmutter. And mm -hmm. yeah, um, the, the Wheat Belly uh, by Dr. I, I can't remember the... Right, but you could just Google Brain Wheat Belly or on Amazon. It's Yeah. Yeah. The Brain Brain and the Wheat Belly, they, they're fantastic books. They cite, you know, a lot of this history that's happened to wheat. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, when I come to Europe, I, I don't have the same issues with eating bread. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe, I don't know, you know, to which extent the genetic modification has something to do with it. Or, you know, some people say, I feel fine if I eat emmer, which is like the ancient um, mm -hmm. of wheat and einkorn. Um, so not the modern version of wheat that uh, is being used. So, um, but yeah, unfortunately it is, it is what it is. And you just need to, um, you know, Try it out. Just experiment a little with your diet. Be ready to, you know, eliminate things. I always tell my clients, you can't expect different results if you keep doing the same thing you've been doing up until now. You know, if you're not getting results doing what you're doing, then something's got to change. You need to adjust some things. And, um, and you know, that a, lot, a lot of people are fine with that. I mean, that's where I think you really need to work with someone because it, it's just over, you're like, where do I, where do I go? What do I change? I mean, there's so many things to potentially look at. Um, okay. Even if you're a practitioner, you go, gosh, there's a hundred different potential, you know, things that are, that are having an effect on me. So it's good to have someone kind of having an aerial view of your lifestyle and your diet and, and the different mm -hmm. tests that you're taking. Um, so, you know, we were talking about gluten, dairy, um, and, um, eggs. What other foods would you recommend that a couple stay away from to optimize their fertility? Um, well, the corn and corn and soy, um, are two mm -hmm. foods we also recommend, um, couples stay away from partially due to genetic modification. And, uh, also because soy has, um, uh, you know, soy contains phytoestrogens and it's just not recommended for fertility. It's also not recommended um, for men and for sperm quality. Um, also, the way soy, you know, is being used in the Western world at a moment where it's, you know, it's just replacing dairy. So you have now soy yogurt, you have soy milk, you have soy protein powder. Um, so everything that you can make from dairy um, you can find in soy version, but it's not fermented soy. Not all of it is fermented. I think miso and tempeh are the only fermented versions of soy. Um, and a lot of the studies done on um, 
soy you know come from asia where they eat fermented soy and they eat it in smaller small amounts so they don't have it in in huge amounts um like you would see um in in some western countries where like i said you know people would just use scoops of soy protein and um and use mm -hmm. soy milk in place of regular milk or eat soy yogurt so it's best to stay away from it i mean you know everything changes in science maybe a decade ago everyone was saying okay soy is great you know mm -hmm. you should use soy because it's not as bad as dairy and especially if you have endometriosis or fibroids you know stick to phytoestrogens um and then you know it changed again that's why you know we also teach our clients to to really take responsibility for their own health and to become actively involved in um, doing some of the research themselves especially for things that apply to them I'm not saying you have to research everything there is um, but you know if you do find out you have a intolerance to particular food or genetic polymorphism then you should keep an eye on this um, in, in the research and you know because science is an ever-changing field and what's correct today or what we say today may be completely wrong in five years from now or in 10 years from now you know things can change like like with cholesterol you know that 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 has changed so much um the information that uh, people are receiving now at, versus you know 10 years ago so mm -hmm. um that's why yeah it, 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 the information is out there it's all out there You've got PubMed, you have Medline, you have lots of different resources and, you know, anyone can hop on there and just do a bit of research to find out about a food or anything else they may be concerned about. PubMed and Medline versus maybe popping onto some forums where it's just a lot of people's opinions, it can get quite confusing and maybe not accurate information because just because it's yeah. on Google does not mean it's I mean, you know, you may come across personal stories, anecdotal mm -hmm. stories, yeah, which, absolutely. you know, are, are definitely, you know, worth um, hearing, but it may not necessarily be, you know, the case for everyone, what that one mm -hmm. person experienced. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Oh, I was, um, I was thinking as far as soy goes, you know, um, in a lot of those, um, like, I don't know. I'm just going to name GNC as a popular like vitamin type store. And I, I, I shouldn't even say their name because I don't know if it's in there, but I know in a lot of like um, bodybuilding, like uh, fitness type powders, it's the soy protein isolates are usually one of the, you know, the number one or two ingredient in there mm -hmm. that men are taking on a regular basis to build mm -hmm. muscle. So mm -hmm. that probably is not the best to be taking daily, right? If you're trying to conceive, if you're a man or yeah. a woman. Mm -hmm. I would say so. I mean, you know, if the sperm are not in optimal shape, um, your sperm analysis doesn't look very good, then um, you should stay away from soy because it does, you know, contain phytoestrogens and men don't really need extra estrogens because too much estrogen can start converting testosterone to estrogen. Um, and and you know I've, I've i've listened to um a couple of podcasts where men claim that they got man boobs from eating <laughs> soy products so um you know it can't be ignored and i guess for men you know they would be even more sensitive to any amounts of estrogen because their body is not used to handling um large amounts of it like a woman's body is mm -hmm. so um yeah we recommend it's best to just stay off um soy when trying mm -hmm. to there's lots of you know if you don't want to have dairy um you know you can use almond milk or um, rice milk or oat milk providing you're not intolerant to um, those foods and um and with rice milk now there's also some concern with um arsenic and some claims that um rice protein powders and rice milks do, do tend to have it in larger quantities than they should so again hmm. need to keep an eye on that one um let's talk about pcos um you said it's best managed with dietary and lifestyle changes talk a little bit about those diet dietary and lifestyle changes sure so um in pcos you 
um, have a problem with insulin resistance where that can then further disrupt hormones. It can also make it difficult to ovulate or to ovulate regularly. Um, the, the surface of the ovaries due to imbalance of um, estrogen and androgens can also become harder, which makes it more difficult for the egg to be released from the follicle, which results then in those cyst-like um, appearance or pearl-like appearance on the um, ovaries. And, um, and there's, I mean, there are lots of other um, symptoms, you know, that can fall under that one umbrella. And uh, you need to have five or six different symptoms to actually be diagnosed with PCOS because you can have cysts, ovarian cysts without having PCOS or you can have hormonal imbalances, or you can have anovulatory cycles without having PCOS. So, you know, you need to tick a few boxes before you're diagnosed with it. But um, it's the consumption of carbs and sugars that has the worst impact on women with PCOS because of that um, imbalance with the insulin. And uh, so, you know, they do best when they're eating um, predominantly, um, you know, paleo type diet. So there's protein, there's leafy greens, um, and they don't have too many starches and also not too much fruit. That's the other thing that's quite confusing because, you know, we, we were always told fruit is healthy, fruit is full of nutrients and enzymes and water. It's the superfood. Um, however, fruit unfortunately also has lots of fructose and fructose can't be readily used by all of our cells in the body it needs to travel to the liver where it's broken down and turned into triglycerides and those triglycerides are then secreted into the bloodstream and when you get your cholesterol checked then they also check your triglycerides to you know to to measure your risk of um, heart disease and uh, also, you know, too many triglycerides and elevated cholesterol uh, fall into that metabolic syndrome. And you see that a lot in women with PCOS. So they also tick that box as well. And um, so your best, your best bet is to, you know, first of all, look at your consumption of refined carbs and fruit and also carbohydrates in general. You don't, it doesn't have to be a refined carb. You could be eating a whole wheat um, you know, bread, um, that doesn't matter, you know, if it contains um, all the carbs in there, that they're going to spike your insulin and they're going to make um, PCOS worse. And then you also um, need to be mindful of dairy because dairy is, strictly speaking, breast milk of another species, which is full of hormones and it's full of insulin growth factors. And insulin growth factors are there to help the young of that species grow into an adult animal. In adult humans, all that insulin growth factors do is they you know, predispose us to weight gain because we're not growing anymore. So we gotta grow somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and also if you have any tumors um, that responds to that ins insulin growth factor, they will get bigger. So if you have benign cysts, or fibroids, you know, they they will they tend to grow when um, when they come into contact with it. So that's why dairy is also best eliminated from your diet with PCOS. And then you should also be mindful of um, pesticides in the um, in your food because they behave as xenoestrogens, which means that they can dock onto the estrogen receptors on your cells and have the same effect as estrogen does. So PCOS is also considered um, to be one of those conditions of excess estrogen um, where the cyst can get worse. So it just, again, depends on which symptoms um, you, you're presenting with. So, you know, what's the case for you? Are you overweight or not? Do you have insulin resistance or not? Um, do you have cysts? Do you have regular cycles or not? So you got to look at all these different um, presentations to find, you know, what's the right diet for you, what's the right approach, and um, take it from there. You, you mentioned the paleo diet. Is there any books that you can recommend if someone wants to be introduced to a paleo lifestyle? 
Um, um, I, I don't know the books exactly, but there is, um, I think there is a really good website, Paleo Hackers or Paleo Hacks, or just you know, with recipes, I, I just find that website quite useful because it gives people an easy access to, um, you know, some, some breakfast, lunch and dinner ideas mm -hmm. and to get going on that. And then ketogenic diet is also, um, you know, very good because it includes lots of good quality fats and fats give you lots of energy. Um, uh, paleo diet has probably more protein than um, ketogenic diets, but they're, you know, versions of the two or somewhere in between. Um, the main thing, you know, just to keep things simple is um, to, really you know cut out your your bread and pasta not all you know you can you can have a cheat day once a week where you can have your gluten-free pasta you know if it's made from buckwheat or quinoa um or you can have you know sweet potatoes occasionally but um you know the the main diet should be based around good quality proteins so you know meat fish um chicken and you know this should all be um, organic or um, grass-fed and uh, wild if we're talking about fish so not farmed lots of leafy greens so vegetables which grow above the ground they should you know be the main part of your diet rather than veggies below the ground um, carrots are a bit of an exception there you can have carrots from time to time in beetroots but you know not every single day and it's best not to spike your insulin first thing in the morning. So it becomes kind of a form of intermittent fasting where um, you allow your, your insulin to come down while you're sleeping and then you try to keep that low insulin state until lunchtime. And that way your body's um, burning fat, but you're also getting um, you know, your, your energy from fats so if you're having... Um, things like coconut or MCT oil in the morning, or just some protein with leafy greens or avocados and um, smoked salmon. Um, you know, th this is gonna give you energy, but they're not gonna spike your insulin. Mm -hmm. That so, makes a big yeah. difference, doesn't it? How you start your day, is it really? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you start your day, the, the typical way, you know, a cereal, bowl of cereal with some milk or, um, and you add some sugar to it, or you have a piece of toast with, um, you know, jam on it. I mean, that's a lot of sugar and that just spikes your insulin. And, and a lot of people notice their cognitive function improves when they're just starting their day with good quality protein and good quality fats. It makes a big difference um, because the fat as a fuel source provides, um, you know, more consistent energy. And, um, and if you're eating sugar, it's really erratic. You, you, you're going up and down and uh, your brain obviously, you know, follows that as well. So you can notice that, you know, you suddenly don't feel that great or that you're a bit grumpy and you need a little snack. You need a little pick me up to get that blood sugar up again. And then your insulin goes up and then it's a roller coaster ride and you can skip that. And for, I, for women with PCOS, it's best that, you know, they get off that roller coaster ride and they just um, avoid sugars and, um, and, and starchy veg and carbs as much as possible. Of course, you can have some lemons, you can have some berries, you know, low GI variety fruit in the afternoon, um, but, you know, not, not too much. And definitely, you know, don't, don't tuck into your uh, watermelons, bananas and, you know, high GI fruits so they can they have high glycemic index um, is there anything you know a lot of us have a sweet tooth is, is there anything that you could recommend to help curb that if if someone's trying to conceive or trying to live a healthier lifestyle and they really want to eliminate sugar but they're struggling um, to do that because um, I, I know sometimes they would say like chromium supplementation helps or I, I don't know if that would even be a good good advice um, well, you've got you've got a few things. I mean, sometimes you you know you, you got to ask yourself why do I crave so much sugar? Is it because I have candida overgrowth? Do, do I have a dysbiosis and my gut is just full of um, you know bad gut bacteria that thrive on sugar and mm -hmm. carbs, and that's why you crave them too? 
Um, so, you know, taking coconut oil or MCT oil really helps there because it kills candida and it kills these bad gut bacteria and also taking good quality probiotics restores the balance and sometimes doing that will have a huge impact on these cravings because we now know that your gut biome can influence um, your neurotransmitters so they can hijack your neurotransmitter production in the gut which can influence your cravings and this is the way these bugs control what you eat so that they survive um, so you got to look at that. The other thing is, you know, we have now um, lots of natural sweeteners that can be used like stevia or um, xylitol um, and uh, other things that you can do. You can use gymnema, the herb. Some, some um, practitioners even recommend putting a few drops of gymnema on your tongue with, and gymnema will neutralize the um, sweet taste buds. So if you then put a you know, piece of chocolate on your tongue, you're not going to be able to detect the sweetness. So it's just going to feel like you've got, you know, something, some, some piece of fat on, in your mouth and suddenly mm. you don't like it anymore, don't want it anymore. Mm. Um, chromium, yeah. Um, and, uh, and one other trick that works really well, um, if you do have a sweet tooth and you're someone who tends to, you know, eat the whole block of chocolate once you start and you can't stop yourself, what you do is you take a piece of really nice, good quality dark chocolate and you put it on your tongue and you leave it there to melt. And like that, you're going to saturate all your taste buds on your tongue with that sweetness and you're actually not going to crave more. And sometimes if it's chocolate you're craving, you need to look at your magnesium levels too because they can be low, which is why a lot of women crave chocolate before their period. Mm. And, and I was told that most of us are very deficient in magnesium. Mm. Um, okay. Uh, Okay, a couple things before we wrap it up. How does one find out more about you? Can you give us um, information? Sure. So we, we have a website called naturalfertilityprescription.com. So it's natural-fertility-prescription.com. Um, and we also have another website called Fertility Coach. So that's fertility-coach.com. And we offer a four-month um online coaching program for couples who have been trying to get pregnant for some time and who just you know need a coach to help them identify all the areas that need to be addressed and then help them address it and then monitor their progress over a period of four months and it's four months because it takes four months to mature those egg cells and approximately three months to mature the sperm cells but you're getting pregnant together it's four months for the couple um, and uh, on our website, you will also find a lot of information about the coaching program, also um, about the art. We have lots of articles on there as well. So lots of free information about PCOS, endometriosis, sperm quality, egg quality, fibroids, um, secondary infertility, lots of, lots of different um, information on different topics. And, uh, and there are success stories and case studies. So you can see what some of our clients um, have been through um, and where we could help. Okay. And then just a personal question. Um, do you have any children? And I do. I do. I have my gorgeous 20-month-old daughter, Ella, um, and um, she's, she's fantastic. Okay. And then did, did you have her – I was told you had her at, at 41 – Yes, I got okay. pregnant at 40 and gave birth to Ella at 41. So um, we conceived her um, one month after, we started trying for a month and then we were pregnant and, uh, and the pregnancy was all good. Um, no, you know, no complications and um, she's a beautiful, healthy girl and we are, yeah, blessed to have her. Great. I just bring that up because I know that um, a, a lot of women, they just get discouraged. They think 40 is old for having a child. I, I, di I disagree um, completely. Uh, of course, you know, some of us, like you said, have some 
underlying, underlying deficiencies that we need to have addressed, but um, it's, you can have a very, very healthy child in your 40s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see that in our clients. Our oldest client gave birth at 45. You can watch her story and video on our website. Um, so that doesn't, you know, the, the age doesn't really matter as much um, as it's portrayed. Uh, it's your chronological age that you can't do anything about. And, and your biological age is something you can do a lot about. So that's what we focus on. Um, and I think, you know, when people who say 40 is too old to have kids, are usually um, those women who had their two or three kids when they were, you know, in their 30s and they're just exhausted. Because as you know, mm -hmm. having, having toddlers around um, is a lot of work. You can't mm -hmm. let them out of sight. So um, I think it's that part that exhausts people. And the thought of having another one and going through that again <laughs> mm -hmm. At 40, you know, to a lot of people, it's just like, no, I'm not doing that to myself. But um, for mm -hmm. those of us who, you know, waited a bit longer to start our families, you've got all that energy still in you. So, yeah, try. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhat. No, I'm just kidding. Right, exactly. I thought, you know, some people have had, exactly, some, I was talking to someone who had their children at, 20 and 24 they're like I could never do it again you're like because you already did it of course it's yeah. exhausting to think of starting all over again but if you never did um anyways okay thank you so much for your time thank you, thanks yes. a lot thanks for having me and if you like the content that you hear today please subscribe so we can continue giving you very high quality content um thank you so much all right bye-bye bye-bye Thanks for listening to the Fertility Hour. For being one of our loyal listeners, we would like to give you free access to a special report called Restore Your Fertility Naturally. Inside, you'll learn about an eight-step all-natural process that's helped hundreds of couples conceive. This is one of our most popular reports, and you can get free access by going to fertilityhour.com forward slash report. Again, that's fertilityhour.com forward slash report. Go there now, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Fertility Hour.